You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Get set, because today we dare enter the rabbit hole that is perception. Perception is defined as a way of regarding, understanding, or interpreting something. It's building a mental impression. It is a monster of a topic, but it has profound implications in the world of human development and human performance. Our perception is largely based on sensory input, our vision, the sounds we hear, touch, taste, smell, our social interactions. And then things get complex because our brain gets involved and starts adding in more components. And these components are very powerful. They round out and complete how we perceive the world around us. Understanding the basic concepts of this huge complex topic are absolutely crucial in the areas of human performance development and critical, I believe, for coaching, teaching, and mentoring. And to help us break open this incredible conversation, we're joined by Crush Hall of Famer, Dr. Martin Morazic. So get set as we head down the rabbit hole and open the discussion on the incredibly interesting topic of perception. Now, during the discussion with Dr. Morazic, a monster storm rolled through and was interfering with our phone connection. So you'll find probably around minute 27 or so of the interview that the signal starts to get really garbled and we lose some of the words uh, but try to decipher what's being said because it's really, really important and honestly, very interesting. So let's get to it as we open the conversation on perception. And we're joined now by Crush favorite, Dr. Martin Morazic, clinical neuropsychologist and professor at the University of Alberta. Also the co-founder and chief psychology officer at Elite Athlete Services, Dr. Morazic. Welcome back to Crush Performance. It has been some time since we've been on the air, but since we've had you on for sure, really, really glad to talk to you today. Yeah, always great to be here, Crush. Looking forward to a, a master conversation here. Well, this conversation was actually spurred on from this crazy time off we had. And of course, the COVID and everybody who follows the show has heard our two uh, uh, return episodes back from a broken heart where I just sort of laid it all out there on the line. And I, I, I really hope that we have helped some people out there, just not in their uh, perception of how to deal with chronic pain and what it means, but also that whole heart attack thing. Carry aspirin, everybody. I promise you it could save your life or the life of somebody you love or somebody around for sure. But Dr. Morazic, here's one thing, you know, uh, about a year out from the heart attack, a year and a bit from my back surgery. One thing that I noticed here a couple months ago and it was working in the yard, and I actually uh, cut my leg and bruised my leg uh, quite badly, just moving some wood around, and it, it wasn't terrible, but but it was quite quite an quite an injury that probably previously I'd paid a little more heed to. But one thing I noticed, I'm looking at it, it doesn't really hurt that much, and then I started noticing little things, and I've sort of come to the conclusion that. My extended severe back pain, and it was unnaturally long, you know, uh, in modern times, you know, talking to the doctors and especially the surgeons who 
who dealt with my back, they're saying it is uncharacteristic and, and, and not even maybe a tad inhuman <laughs> to deal with the pain I was dealing with for the length of time I did. Uh, and they were actually quite interested in how it affected me in a number of different ways. But could it have adjusted the way I perceive pain? And I believe it has. And it's brought on this whole giant conversation that we're diving into today, today called perception. And we're about to go down a rabbit's hole. What do you think of that, Dr. Morazic? This, this adjustment in, in my personal pain index. Possible, do you think? Yeah, well, when we talk about perception, uh, you know, I think it's kind of illustrated by an example where you go to a hockey game, let's say, and you watch the game and afterwards you're talking, and one person says, oh, that was a fantastic game. I don't think the team's ever played better. And then somebody else goes, like, what are you talking about? The defense was terrible. Like, what were they doing out there? And then somebody else chimes in and says, well, it wasn't that bad. And so you get these differences of opinion or these changes in perception. And so when it comes to the, the, the topic of perception, I would classify kind of two ways we, we can try to understand it. It's a huge topic, but uh, two ways that we can understand it. One of them is kind of the biological basis, and I think that's what you're talking about there is pain and pain perception. And you ask somebody to put their hand in a, uh, you know, a glass of water or a bowl of uh, ice water, and you get them to rate the intensity of pain, and you're going to get different readings all over the place. And so why is that and what's going on there? So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic, especially when it comes to applying it to sports. Well, you have that biological side. So, so right. But, but I love that, that, that analogy of the, the hockey game. <laughs> and I've heard it walking down the street after going to an Oilers game or even going to a football game, just hearing the fans talking as we're exiting the, the stadium or the arena, the differences of opinions. And you kind of just smile and listen because, man, everybody's so passionate and everybody's so darn right in their own mind, right? That's a pretty cool perspective right there. Speaking of perception. Yeah, and, and that's just it, right? It's like, it was the same hockey game, so why are people's perspectives or perceptions of things so radically different? And what is it about the brain or what is it about us that, that you know, causes those changes in perception? And so, uh, like I said, I think the biological piece, we're going to dive, dive into that today. The other piece that I think is also important is a psychological perception. And so we kind of think of uh, the way we were constructed is that we have an ideal self. And this is the way we perceive our, our, our ability to really do things well. And you see little kids and they have dreams that they're a certain player and they imagine themselves as Connor McDavid. And then we have the real self, which is how we actually play. And then over time, it's like, well, why can't I play like my real, you know, why is the real self not the same as my ideal self? And so we have this perception of, well, okay, why am I different or what's going wrong? Those kind of things. And I would put that into more of the psychology piece, but uh, looking forward to diving into the biological piece. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is really interesting and very pertinent in the world of sport performance as well. I'll, well, let's just for, forget, forget even sport performance, human performance, growing, um, learning, adjusting and developing. This has a major, major role. And I'm actually quite surprised it's not more prevalent in the literature or even in the conversations we have, especially revolving around coaching, mentoring and teaching Dr. Morazic. Does that kind of make sense? There are massive, massive indications here for um, understanding how people learn, but then adjusting the delivery system of information even or training stimulus to help them adapt to the environment. And I think that is maybe 
at the core essence of true coaching, teaching, and, and mentoring. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you on, on that one, uh, Crush, because I think it's just such a mammoth topic that it, it's really hard to unpack it a bit, but uh, that's that's why it's great to have these conversations with you to unpack that. I think the really good coaches, uh, the really high-level players, well, they're actually doing a lot of these things, but putting it together, right, just making sense of it and really putting it into the context that you've just ex- explained, like, you know, uh, pain perception, well, what's going on there and how do we actually manage that? How do we teach that? Um, it's a mammoth topic, but at the same point, like, it, it, it's a little hard to, uh, you know, talk about these abstract concepts, and yet when we do, I think they can make a radical difference for, for you know, like you say, not just sports, but for human performance. For sure. And anybody who's listened to the show, you guys can go back. You know that Dr. Morazic has been on a number of times and you're actually uh, one of the sparks that pushed us towards the crush brain game and us adding the brain game to our top priorities for human performance, Dr. Morazic. And those come back from our discussions way back in the day with, um, you know, the conversations revolving around just setting our athletes up for success and how the brain game, the mindset, and all the psychology of of performance comes into play. But it's even much, much more than that. So this perception thing kind of is uh, classified under our brain game umbrella, but it has implications in every single aspect of human performance, endeavor, and even learning and growth and development, I would say. Yeah, no, I like you're pretty, you and I are pretty aligned with that because uh, we're going to be talking about the brain and how the brain works and, and how it's a component of all this. And so I think that's that's really important, right? And so we're talking about one facet of how the brain works when it comes to perception, but ultimately it's about this piece of equipment that we have in our heads called our brains that's so responsible for all these different facets. So that's why I think, yeah, perception is a really big deal. And as we unpack it, it kind of helps us understand what actually how this applies to specific areas. Right. Okay, so now I think the big question for us <laughs> is where do we start? Because boy, oh boy, um, this is a monster topic. But I think there is a starting point that we can sort of maybe ground ourselves on and work forward from. And I think maybe if we could sort of talk about how perception works, how do you build perception? It starts from the moment we exist and, and comprehend things. There's no question. And it also evolves and changes over time. My experience is included uh, with the pain thing. Um, but if we were going to start our conversation on perspective and perception, where do you think the starting point might be, Dr. Morazic? Well, I would, I would start with how our brain processes, especially visual and auditory information. And so just kind of basic biology here, but when, say, we're looking at something, our eyes have these very sophisticated photoreceptors that send messages to the back of the brain. And the very outer layer of the back part of our head, the occipital lobe, right, is, is we call it a, a C1. But um, back a, a number of years ago, a couple of neuroscientists named Hubel and Weasel would put electrodes in these areas of the cat brain. And what they identified is in those outer layers, so the very first level of perception. So not just looking at, okay, you can see something, but this is a very first level of perception. And what they found is that in the cat's eye, if they would flash a specific shape, uh, like a square or a circle or a triangle, there was select uh, neurons in the brain that would fire or light up when, when the cat would see these specific shapes. 
But when other shapes came in, these neurons would go quiet and other neurons would, would, uh, would fire. And so it told us that at the very basic levels of perception, um, we, we start to process things in very basic ways. So very basic shapes. And so we all recognize, of course, shapes and circles and all those kind of things. Um, same with auditory perception, right, is that we, we hear a high C or a B sharp or something, and our brain, a very select part of our brain, lights up and tells us that's what it is. Now, as we move forward, so when we, we move uh, you know, from the very outer part of the brain, C1, all the way in, that's when we add in higher levels of other components of brain functioning or higher levels of perception. And so, again, as we move forward, we now uh, uh, the, the next layers start to track movement, right? So not only what the shape is, but how it's moving, where it's moving to, it adds in colors, it adds in arm movement, all those kind of things. So it's kind of interesting when we think of perception that we have this very basic image that we're recording or very basic sound, but then as we add more components to it, that's where the complexity comes in. And I think the three broad things that the brain adds once you're seeing something is three things. One of them is our attention. So that's kind of the, our focus, that very narrow beam of light where we're, we're really looking or what we're hearing, our state of arousal. So how we perceive things can be very much um, affected by our level of arousal or activity. If we're under aroused, we're probably going to miss things or if we're over aroused, also going to miss things. And then the last thing is our memories. So what we see in the world around us, it's like we have this human Rolodex that constantly scans what we're seeing and compares it to what we've, uh, you know, what we're seeing now. And that's tied to our emotional memory. And that's why a certain song can bring up emotions or a certain sight. You see somebody and you go, oh, uh, that person reminds me of somebody, right? It's very powerful when we think of adding these three things in, attention, arousal, and memory. And those really feed into this basic perception system and really add what I think is our overall perception. I hope that's making sense so far. Oh, no, it makes terrible sense. And it, it really does shine a light on how this whole incredible system works. But for me, it's really intriguing, Dr. Morazic, in terms of how we may able to harness this stuff to help development in the world of sport, of course, but, but not just that. You think about childhood development or um, in your world, the work you guys have done on return to play and concussion management, coming back and trying to tap into these areas of perception to help a person recover better. The implications here are great in so many different areas of, of human existence, for crying out loud. And the idea of the arousal, the states and that emotional history, that is fascinating stuff. Yeah, no, it sure is. And if we want to start with attention, um, you know, so it's again, this focus spotlight where we, where we're really concentrating on. And, uh, there were some really interesting studies that kind of showed how our detention and our perception work. And Daniel Simmons did this experiment where we would have a group of people that were walking around and they were passing a basketball back and forth. And the, the person that was watching this, they had to count how many times the person would uh, pass the basketball. You can watch this experiment on YouTube. It's actually fascinating. And during the experiment, a person in a gorilla suit would walk through the group. All right. So dress in a gorilla suit. And um, when they asked people afterwards, over 50% of them didn't even notice the gorilla. All right. So it's like, well, what's going on there? Right. Like, how could they miss the gorilla? 
but we know if you're looking at it afterwards, you're looking for the gorilla. But if you're not, it shows us that there's something about our attention level that narrows in, and if it narrows in too much, then we miss things because we're so dialed into a specific thing that we're missing something else. So I'm sure you can think of like different applications of this where you see people's uh, level of attention is just too narrow and they're missing things. Yeah, and again, this this is intriguing to me for sure because you know different sports require different uh, focal attention, right? You have those laser sharp things like think of biathlon where they're shooting at a target or you're hitting a baseball or spiking a basketball or even a free throw. Let's just say in 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 basketball where your attention at that moment is so so focused you probably don't hear the fans you don't see the colors you only are focused on one particular thing heck i'm not gonna lie to you i remember uh driving home one day and um when i turned at our corner to the final corner to get to our house i couldn't even remember half the drive for crying out loud i don't i tell you the truth i don't even know if i was there (laughs) because I just, I was on, I was focused on the road or I think I was behind a big truck with a, with a crazy load. And I just, it just flew by like, like, uh, it didn't even exist. Incredible how the mind works. Yeah, and, and that's the perfect example of when we talk about attention and especially for young athletes, I'm sure told that first from their budget, pay, you need to pay better attention or in school. I know I heard that uh, far too many times. Mrazek, pay attention, you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, what does that even mean, right? Like, well, what is, how do we do that? How do we think about our attention and our ability to focus? And that's why when we look at the neurochemical system, it's very interesting because dopamine is the arousal chemical, right? So when, when our sympathetic system is activated and we're, we're really feeling positive about something, we're really engaged in activities, dopamine really narrows our focus, right? And so you give the perfect example of somebody who's uh, shooting a free throw And what you want in that particular case is you don't want them paying attention to the broad world around them. You want them to be dialed in or a baseball player stepping up and and having to focus on if it's a curveball or or a fastball or whatever it is. So dopamine really plays its role. And when dopamine levels are higher, our focus really narrows in on specific things, which is great. But we only can hold that narrow focus for so long. And again, in sports that demand this high level of perception or high level of attention, it's, it's how do we train our brain so we can dial in when we need to, but also dial out when we're not. Because if you can't dial out, then you're also going to miss things. That's the big picture thing, right? In the game, it's not about being able to hone in on specific things all the time. You have to see the game. You have to have your attention focused on much broader things. And so that's the challenge. When we talk about perception, it's like, how do I help my brain narrow its focus? And then how do I help it expand when I need to kind of take a, like coaches are really good at this, right? Their perception of the game is they look at the big picture here. So that's where that attention plays such a big role. And I probably, you've seen this a number of times in your professional athletes, right? Is that's the thing is how do you get them to dial in? How do you get them to pay attention when they need to? We're talking with Dr. Martin Morazic, clinical neuropsychologist, co-founder and chief psychology officer at Elite Athlete Services. You can go to EliteAthleteServices.com to check out their great information. Ooh, Dr. Morazic, this is 
a fascinating conversation that's gone kind of in a way I hadn't anticipated before, but you said something there that's just maybe like a magical world. Talk about primer or readiness or heightened arousal states uh, when you said train the brain. This is something to me that's just been such a, a, an, an incredible topic for, for decades. But you and I actually did a little project a few years ago. And uh, it stemmed just from that. We're talking about levels of readiness and arousal states and helping athletes avoid injury was our ultimate goal. But we looked at different ways of preparing athletes for a sport performance environment. And for, for us, when we discussed this, we thought that, hey, maybe a really unique approach to the warm up would be great because we all understand the physical side. At least I feel we do. Like in the in the sports science world, I think we have a really strong grasp, Dr. Morazic, on the physical preparedness of, of performance for, for sport, getting athletes ready, heightened readiness, arousal states, that sort of thing from the physical side. But what we were trying to attack are, do we do a good enough job uh, preparing the brain or stimulating the brain for the context of the environment those athletes were going into. And in our case, it was young hockey players. So we actually embarked on a little project, a little experiment where we actually, before they even started their physical warm up, they would go through a number of exercises to stimulate their brains, get them focused, get that dopamine going, but doing it with meaning. I feel just even explaining the benefits and doing it with meaning might've even helped get that dopamine flowing because they knew they were doing something good. Does that sound fair to you? Yeah, no. And, and that's, I think that's exactly where we're getting at is, is like you say, it's, it's, we warm up our muscles. So why not warm up our brain and specifically what we need and warming up the parts of our brain where we need to focus. Cause I think that's the biggest challenge that, that anybody deals with any given day, your attention, your level of focus is, is really good. You're dialed in or other days you just feel distraction, distracted. I mean, there's lots of variables, sleep, nutrition, uh, you know, stressors, all those kind of things that, that can, that can derail those type of things. But yeah, exactly is how do we help the brain? And so, you know, when we look at how the brain works, there's certain things, uh, certain um, hearing inputs. Uh, people may have heard of 40, 40 megahertz, which is a certain tone that when you play it, your brain seems to become a little more, more aroused and activated. And so when we think of, okay, players getting prepared for a game about half an hour before, what are they listening to? And how does it, like we all know mo um, um, music affects our, our moods, but in what way? It, it should be in a positive way. It should be, we don't want to be over-aroused or we don't want to be over-focused, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're doing enough things. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a really huge thing is, is developing a routine where you're very conscious of the things that are going to help your attention. Yeah, for sure. So does that take us to sort of our second point that you that you brought about? You know, we had attention and focus. Does that take us to the state of arousal, the preparedness and being there? Not too high, not too low, but kind of finding that sweet spot for whatever we're doing? Yeah, 100%. And so here, here's the illustration that I find is very interesting. Is think of the perception of time. And I'm sure this has never happened to you, but it's happened to me where I'm late for a meeting. All right, I'm driving somewhere or I'm running late and uh, I know it. And I'll make the excuse that it was traffic, but I've lived in Edmonton for 40 years and <laughs> I know it's probably not the traffic. It's probably you're busted. Me. Anyway, you're busted, mister. <laughs> I'm busted. But as you're driving and you're in this aroused state, you're anxious. 
time perception changes where every second it's painful to be at a red light. It's like, come on, would you just turn green? Like every second is painful or maybe it's you're in a boring lecture and it's just like every second is dragging on or you have the reverse experience where, you know, you're in a relaxed environment or maybe you're, you're playing a game, playing hockey, playing basketball or when I'm training and I'm just, I'm not even conscious of time. What's interesting is that the measurement of time hasn't changed. Time is still ticking away at the same interval, but that aroused state is significantly impacting our perception of time. And so that tells us something about the brain is what do we need to do to make sure that we're, our aroused state is such that we're prepared for what's about to happen, because if we're over aroused, we're probably going to be, our perception of time is going to be off and our perception of what's going on, we're probably going to overthink things. But we also don't want to be under aroused where it's, again, things are passing us by and it's like we're not even responding to that. Very interesting. Is this where we sort of get into the conversation of that zone, that elusive, that very elusive zone type state where we actually slow the game down. The ball looks like a beach ball or the puck, you know, looks like a giant saucer or whatever it might be. This is kind of what we're talking about here. It's more trainable and controllable than we might think, but you can't do any of that unless you understand the concept. And I believe that conversation comes from this idea of perception. And I think we're onto something here, Dr. Morazic. Yeah, um, and, and that's, that's why it's fascinating, right? And like you say, it, right, I think our arousal states have so much to do with, with how we perform. And when we look at what we call state-dependent learning, and so when we did our uh, number of psychology experiments where they, they had uh, you know, uh, individuals listening to music or they studied in a certain part of the library where there's a color there, and then they looked at how they performed afterwards, right? When you emulated the environment that you were in, in some way you did Better. And so that tells us that our arousal state where, where we're really perceiving the world around us, that helps us with our ability to, to really perceive what's going on. And so I, I think that, that's fascinating uh, when it comes to this whole perception of, of, of our arousal states. And when we look at the literature, we know that a person, in order to learn maximally, in order to perform maximally, they need to be somewhat aroused. And so they've done, uh, Andrew Huberman talks about some of the interesting experiments where they did learning experiments, where they did, uh, especially with motor learning, and they would show, uh, you know, certain athletes uh, pictures of, like some of them were inert neutral pictures, and then some of them would be of sharks or something that is a little bit anxiety provoking. And they found is that when there was kind of this, this elevation of alertness or arousal state, you simply performed better. But if it took over, if your system got hijacked, then, of course, your, your performance really worsens. So it really does tell us that for the brain to function uh, very well, your perception of what's going on around you, your arousal state has a lot to do with your perception. Because we tend to over-perceive things when we're very anxious we tend to over-perceive certain things. And I think the best example of that is unfortunately when people deal with trauma, right? And if you're a young athlete and you had a really negative experience, say you're at the, uh, you know, at the plate and you got beamed by a baseball, well, suddenly your arousal state, right, is so much higher and probably not where it should be. And so when you even see the pitcher wind up, what's happening inside of you? You're probably over-focusing on certain things and not really... 
uh, you know, being able to perceive what you need to be. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it seems to be this causal state, as, as you're saying, has a significant impact on how we're perceiving things. Yeah, no, no, it makes total sense for sure. I know that for me personally, um, I'm like a high arousal guy. Like, you know, I think if you'd ask anybody that knows me, they say, Crusher, you run hot, man. <laughs> Let's you know, pedal to the metal. <laughs> you know, it's, it's go, go, go. And I'll listen to like, you know, I'm like a Metallica, you know, Volbeat type of guy before, before I get into a competition or if I take on a task, uh, a hard ride or something where, where like my brother, who's a distance runner, very, very distant, different type of an athlete. Um, but he takes a different approach. He likes to calm things down, listen to calming, soothing music, you know, with good rhythms and, and, and good melodies, uh, where I'm pedal to the metal kind of. So, so maybe that dives into this next area where we have memories and experiences that actually bounce back and, and give us sort of that, would, would context be a good word here to use now? Because this word context has to play a major role in this conversation, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I love the word context here because when we look at the prefrontal cortex of the pain, especially the medial prefrontal cortex, it's the one that gives us context and what we're, what we're doing and what we're seeing. And so, as I said earlier, our memory is just powerful because we, we have vivid memory uh, at emotional times in her life, and especially when it was a positive emotion, and you know, if you've ever won a championship or whatever, you can probably play by play everything that happened because you're so aroused, and remember information is incredibly sharp. Or on the other side of things, when when there was something really bad that happened, and in, in my world of neuropsychology or psychology, we see in, in people who have unfortunate post-traumatic stress, and there are certain images that are stuck there. And they keep playing in, in uh, their working memory. And part of therapy is, is really taking those vivid memories and, and being able to turn them down. But the point here is that memories play a significant role in perception. Okay, sorry, you broke up there just a little bit. But coming back, you just sort of mentioned that uh, memories play a significant role in perception. And, and I really understand that. You know, I think maybe could we look at it like this? They sort of set the boundaries for how we understand things? Would that be sort of a fair interpretation of that, Dr. Mrazek? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's fair and both important as well because when we think of our memories, right, it, it tells us who we are and, and, then, and then what's important to us. And, and, and so memories just kind of give us so much of a, a context of, of our identity and, and how we've been able to do things. And so, uh, again, as we talked about earlier, uh, memories play such a role in perception, and when there's when there's been a when you evoke a memory of either a very pleasant or a very unpleasant uh, event in your life, that sets the context, and people can feel emotions, right? When when they think of a song that they've heard before, when they see somebody that that reminds them of somebody that may have passed away, or reminds them of somebody that they really really like and admire, it it just completely sets the context for it, and that's why that memory component. And especially as we think of young athletes is building a bank of good memories. And if they are having trouble in a certain skill set, well, they want to rebuild that bank of memories where it's more positive, where they came away with something that they, they felt better about. Because then they have those memories to, to rely on, not just past failure. Yeah, and that's interesting. You know, I had a great experience with my daughter on the ski hill when she was younger. And this is one of the first times we had taken them, the girls, we had three girls, of course, 
we'd taken them to the mountains to ski. We'd been going to the little local ski hills just to get them on the snow because I I love the sport and and for me it's a great family uh, day out as well. So we wanted to take the girls. We sort of got them ready to, out to the mountains. And so we're out there and our middle daughter, she's a little dynamo go-getter and we're going up this one lift and she's looking at the run below and watching, you know, some of the ski team kids going down and people skiing. She goes, dad, I want to try that, that run. I'm going, oh, that's pretty, that's a pretty tough one. She says, no, I want to try it. I want to try it. So I said, okay, well, we'll just go slow and take your time and don't do anything you're not, uh, uh, you know, uncomfortable doing, right? Don't do anything out of your, out of your range. And so we're on there. And we get we get to the 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 run. We're going down, and then she realizes <laughs> the perception from the from the chairlift is way different than the perception of standing on the side of this mountain. And so she winds up sliding down on her butt, screaming the whole way. And I'm right there. She was totally safe, but it was scary for her. And I'm going, okay, well, that's a great experience. You know, I'm thinking to myself, and and she goes, she you know she realizes you know boundaries and limits. Then we're riding up the the uh, lift after lunch, and she goes, "Hey, Dad, I think I want to try that run again." I'm going, "Oh, no, hold on! You know what happened last time? This is what she said to me, Marty. She said, if I never face my fears, I'll never overcome my fears.' <laughs> and I'm mm. sitting, and I'm sitting there as a, you know, I got my I got my ski goggles on, and I might be, I'm, I'm not going to say I was tearing up at all, but I'm like proud pop on the chairlift. And then you know what? We went down, we got to the top. We talked about the strategy. So she did like the snow plowed all the way down, but she stood up and skied down that entire hill after she mm. maybe got that context, but maybe that's an experience that kind of falls into this conversation. Do you think? Yeah, no. And, and that's a powerful example, right? Of, of the perception of something and how initially it's like, Oh, that should be fine. And then you do it. And I think we've all had those experiences where we made decisions and we ended up in a scenario. I've done that with skiing before. It's like, oh, what did I just do? Right. right? And yeah. then the fear and the dread is like, oh, man, this is a and how do you get out of that? Right. And, and what what happens? And and so when we again, going back to the biological basis for this. I think one of the important, uh, interesting uh, parts of our brain is uh, what we call the medial prefrontal cortex. And that's part of the front part of our brain that's involved in decision making. But more than decision making, it's known to set a context for, for what's going on. And so the, the typical example is, you know, if we think of a, a big tub of ice water and uh, uh, if we were to take somebody and put them in that big ice, uh, you know, um, bucket of ice water, you'd have an instant sympathetic reaction in which your heart rate would skyrocket and uh, the pain would be very evident and there'd be an element of distress, right? And it's like, well, that's, that's terrible. Like all those things are distress signals for the body and yet people do this, right? I'll be honest, I've tried it a couple of times. I'm not a big fan of it, but some people, especially football players, they love their ice buckets after a, a hard workout. And what's interesting there is that what's going on is that the medial prefrontal cortex is setting a context. So even though you're getting all this input uh, and, and pain and heightened sympathetic arousal uh, uh, from heart rates and breathing rates and so on, you're able to do it. And that, that is a very powerful thing because that tells us that even when we we're dealing with pain and suffering and those type of things, when we have a context, now we're able to uh, you know, push ourselves through that or we're able to get through that. And I think the, the 
uh, for your daughter there, what she experienced is that she was setting a new context, right? Is that the first time, pretty rough. But she was able to set a context, which is, no, I'm able to do this. And you were obviously there to, to help, you know, help her think through it. And so I think it's very powerful when we think of the perception that, you know, uh, the perception of being in an ice bucket is very unpleasant. And yet we can do it. Our perception changes because we have a new context. And that's for building new memories that are more positive can give us a new perspective or a new, uh, it gives new perceptions of what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. Now, as a coach or a teacher or a mentor, this is an incredibly important conversation. If you have an athlete that's struggling, and I think we mentioned it earlier a bit, maybe an athlete that's in a slump, you know, hitting, and we've seen athletes struggle day on, day off, and apparently for no reason. I mean, if we looked at the biochemistry day to day uh, from an athlete, if they're on a good program, it changes very little. If we look at the physiology of an athlete from day to day, there's fatigue states, there's things, but we try to keep them in a range where they're not really changing from day to day. And yet, um, performance can drastically vary from one attempt to the other. And I guess maybe that's part of the whole process of becoming an elite performer is to kind of get in that zone where you can actually operate at a level where you can compete uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in those sports that have multi-competition schedules like the major North American sports, the NHL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NFL. Uh, that's a really, really trying. And uh, uh, as a coach, being aware of that and how to deal with that could be so, so important, man. This is a, this is an incredible conversation for coaches out there. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And, and when we think of, again, helping an athlete uh, really take on things that they're, that they're scared to take on or when they're nervous about something or it's the big game, right? You know, we all uh, think about being in the seventh game overtime but how many people want the, the puck on their stick at that time? Because, well, it's a big moment, right? And that's where uh, helping athletes set a context for that, right? And, and be ready for that and, and be ready to write, write their story. I think, you know, anxiety can do a lot of things, as we've talked about, to derail your perception of things. Um, and in that moment, things can look really black. And from my own experience, when I started doing triathlons and I was uh, in open water swims, for whatever reason, as I was swimming and I couldn't see the ground underneath me, my heart rate would skyrocket. I had this feeling of just dread come over me. And it's like, what is going on? And I don't necessarily understand why. But as I had to work through that, I had to continually set a new context for myself and say, no, we can do this and, and just go, go uh, you know, I would start off with a very short uh, swim where I couldn't see the ground. And then it was like, okay, well, I can do this. And so it was just layering and layering these, these new memories that allowed me to change the perception that my body was dealing with. And so, like you say, as a coach, how do we, how, you know, just understanding a player and what may be going on in the past memories and their arousal states. And uh, again, what is their attention on by really thinking about those variables I think that, that it really allows the potential for, for athletes to, again, to set a new context for them so they can do the things that maybe they're, they're struggling to do. Yeah, great conversation today on perception. We're joined by Dr. Martin Mrazek, clinical neuropsychologist, co-founder of Elite Athlete Services. Go to EliteAthleteServices.com to check out their great information. There are so many implications here. You know, it brings back a memory. 
Dr. Mrazik of one of our uh, MLB academies in Europe. And we're, you know, young players that we're trying to create pathways to either college or professional ball. And, you know, these guys come from uh, countries where baseball and is not really a major sport. So we're kind of just showing them the ropes at these camps. And it's actually, it was a lot of fun and quite an honor to be able to do that. But in one of the camps, we were just noticing the players, their body language. And in different parts of the world, body language is maybe perceived in different ways. And, and I'm talking maybe even culturally, uh, but I don't think the guys realized how their their uh, body language would be interpreted by college recruiters or major league scouts. So one of our coaches from Sweden, at the end of the day, when we had all the guys around, and they had a fantastic practice. The guys, uh, we got all the players together, and Tony gets gets the floor and he goes, hey, does anybody here speak Swedish? And everybody's going, no, we had two boys from Sweden. They spoke Swedish. And he goes, okay, you two guys just, just settle down there. He says, I'm going to present in, in, I'm going to talk to you guys in, in Swedish. And so he starts going off on Swedish, really rough, really aggressive. Like it would be kind of like a chastising talk. You know, he's, it's really not condescending, but aggressive and accusatory in tone. Da 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 da. da. And he's stomping on the ground, and all the players are going, "Holy smokes, what is going on here?" And I'm sitting there going, "Tony, what is going on here?" And at the end, he goes, "Do you guys know what I said?" And he go, "They're going, well, no, you're, you know, the players go, you looked mad at something. Maybe we, he goes, no, I said you guys had a great practice." I said, the adjustments you made were incredible to watch as a coach. Your tenacity, your stick to itness. And so he 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 actually uh, um, translated what he said, but his body language was as though he was, you know, giving these guys the seventh degree for not lack of effort and stuff. And that was his message on body language and the perception of body language. And and for some reason, this conversation just brought up that memory and how powerful that was for the players because for the rest of the camp on the field, at least. These guys were very aware of how they presented themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? And Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book talking to strangers recently, and he talks about that very thing is, is reading bodily language. And sometimes uh, we, we get it right, but sometimes we get it very wrong, right? And, and nervous behaviors interpreted a certain way. And, uh, and that's why when you think how do, we, how do we present ourselves so we give the perception that we are in control? And that's powerful, right? You know, when you're looking at your opponent and you're looking for a weakness and you see them, you know, smiling, you see them relaxed, you see them uh, looking confident, it makes you think, doesn't it, right? It's like, ah, oh, they seem unfazed, unraveled. Maybe, maybe they are, but they've given the perception they're in control. And so... And when it comes down to these anxiety-provoking scenarios, seventh game overtime, and so on, and is that ever a powerful thing? Is to maintain that that poise where it really gives the the belief that that person is is ready to go and that they're going to be a surmountable challenge to you know to deal with. And and you're right, like we read that we 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 look at nonverbals all the time, and that's a you know in in the psychology world, it's you know fifty to sixty percent of what uh, you know facilitates an interaction is looking at body language, and so that's important because sometimes when we get it wrong and somebody looks weak or somebody looks too strong, well maybe it's body language. So yeah, that's a very interesting conversation when it comes to just really understanding the nuances of of speech and tone and and uh, posture and all those things.
For sure. And I guess also for me, you know, on this conversation of memories and experience, that's a way a coach kind of sets a boundary for a player, a context for a player to understand, okay, holy cow, maybe my body language is something that's more important than I realize. And of course, we know all the studies on the physiological changes when you're standing in a power position, right? So all those things, but it kind of comes full circle to the coach's uh, ability to set those boundaries for ex and, and experiences for the athletes so they can learn and grow and develop. And it kind of brings us back maybe to, you know, your, Ironman training. Now, listen, you guys are different animals for sure. So I've done a sprint marathon or a, sorry, a sprint uh, a triathlon. And um, that was something I, for the record, I swim like a tugboat, <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, um, I've been around high performance athletes all my life. And one of the things I truly, truly appreciate uh, Dr. Morazic is something you mentioned earlier, their ability to do things that are just so brutally uncomfortable. The uh, average person just wouldn't do it, but they realize that that brutal training and that uncomfortable state they get into serves a purpose. So they're willing and able to do it. And maybe even with incredible, powerful meaning, right? But after I did that little sprint triathlon, I crushed the the, the bike side. The swim was horrific. Um, I, I battled through, though, and uh, the ride was fantastic and fun. The run was really, really hard for me because I'm not a great runner. But um, I got a, a true appreciation uh, for those athletes, and I think it helped me on my side of the profession to help them better. But, but just that whole experience and that purpose and the context of that training – uh, kind of comes full circle for the whole human development type process. You know, when we look at other, uh, you know, areas where this is applicable, uh, Navy SEAL training is, of course, very interesting. And when they take them through their really intense training, uh, you know, to get into the, the SEAL program, and they, they have, you know, things like Hell Week, where they deprive individuals of sleep, where they, you know, expose them to all kinds of noise and chaos. And what they're doing there is, is they're, they're helping these individuals set a context that if they can, if they can deal with that, right, then their perception of other scenarios is going to be very different, right? And so that, that's what you're getting at, right, is, is that we're teaching our brains, we're teaching ourselves to really set a new context and that when we are breaking ground or we're trying to do new things or dealing with pain or dealing with training, dealing with all those kind of other things, we are actually, you know, teaching ourselves and we're using this principle of changing our perception that I couldn't do this before, I could do this before, to now I can, I've been able to, I've created new pathways. And for me, and as an endurance athlete, that's important because when you're hitting those 30 and 40 kilometer sections, right, that's when you need that, right? You need that context to say, I have been able to do this. I can do this, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it makes so much sense. And that Navy SEAL uh um, story or analogy is very, very powerful, powerful because, well, that's life and death, right? Very, very serious in terms of their training and preparing those soldiers for the combat situations they'll go into. So that is a powerful thing. And it's interesting because with the Blue Jays, uh, when we would play in Baltimore, 
we would have a contingency from Washington come over and often some of the Navy SEAL officers would come and just hang out and we'd get a chance to actually talk with them. And I found it very interesting. They're always looking for ways and looking in other areas and other disciplines to um, learn or find new ways that they might integrate into their systems and where we're looking to them to figure out, okay, what kind of magic are you guys using and how can we maybe work that into our world as well? And so that sharing of ideas also brings some context to the, to the big picture of, of, you know, the whole idea of human performance. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, the conversation here today is about changing perception, Yeah, right? And that's what we want. We're really striving for changing the perception of when our body is telling us I can't, when our body is, our mind is telling us I'm struggling, all those kind of things. What do we do? Well, we have to look at, well, what are you paying attention to? How, what, what's your arousal state? And then what are the memories that are, are contributing to that? Because I think as we break those things down, we'll probably realize that if somebody's, their perception is way off, like in the case of your daughter's thing, right? I think she was super over aroused, right? And she didn't have positive memories. So what you did is you kind of calmed her. Your presence there was actually very important. And then she could set a new perspective. So I, I really, this, you know, that this whole driving the point home of perception is massive right? It's completely, it's, it, and so we want to think about those elements that are helpful for, you know, all athletes to change their perception uh, in, uh, you know, in their development and how they can perform at the next levels Well, they have to change their perception. Yeah, right. And from the mental side, well, you mentioned anxiety and stress and, you know, depression is another one. Um, perception of that can also change. And I think getting in front of that, and you and I have been talking about this for years and we've talked about you know preparing and, and and addressing it early even before it's an issue so when athletes do go through tough times or people humans go through tough times they have a context to deal with getting back to my personal experience that pain issue that i had it got so bad and it was covid so there was no medical outlet for me it was impossible for me to get fixed for my back so there was no there was no solution to my pain. Uh, borders were closed, so I couldn't go to another part of the world to go see a doctor. Doctors here were two or three years out. I didn't have a context here. I didn't know what to do. And for the first time in my life, Dr. Mrazik, and you and I have talked about this, and I've talked about it on the show so everybody knows, I, sl I slipped into a depression. I, I didn't, I, I don't know if I've ever been, I've been sad before. I've had periods of sadness or stress, you know, tests, moving, whatever. But I don't know if I've ever been truly, truly depressed. Um, and had I had maybe some context or even some hope on the other side, it might have been very, very different for me. For sure. And, you know, we, we get into this, this broader, um, you know, context of purpose and meaning. And in that setting, right, like, what was the purpose and meaning behind your suffering? Well, there was no context, right? It was just like, I am just sitting here, and I'm suffering, right? And, and that's, that's tough. That, that will take anybody into a dark hole, because you had no context for this. Am I just going to suffer for the rest of my life? Uh, there's no meaning to this. It's affecting the quality of my life. But then when things started to move, it was like, well, you still were in pain. You still had the same medical condition, but now you had this new context. You had new purpose. You had a new direction. And finding that was, that was the hard part, right? Is you had to find that. But once you did, 
like look at where you took it and the journey i think from there really helped kind of remove you out of that dark hole and into putting things in a context that no i there is there is hope there is solutions i can see a surgeon i can get this done and now you have a life back right because you have a new context because you have a new perspective because you have a new perception on this how great could this be in sport oh my goodness i i'm just loving this hey maybe maybe on a sort of a closing note here because this has been a fantastic conversation but maybe before we wrap it up here let's talk about the implications of that for athletes at any level of sport i'm talking grassroots youth athletes right up to our olympic pro athletes <clears throat> there's stress and anxiety there's different pressures at every single level a lot of the times i think at least from my experience in in the world of sport athletes tend to put a lot of pressure on themselves and then there's the pressure from the outside as well uh, but understanding that and knowing how to deal with that uh can really help athletes get to the other side i think and if we had a preemptive strike sort of preparing people or in, in people yeah in sport period prior to uh getting these experiences what a difference that could make yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think developmentally, like, what is their purpose for getting kids to play sports? Well, at their age, it should be fun. That should be the context. It should be this enjoyable thing where they learn about themselves, they learn about peer relationships, but they do things that are happy for them. And then you you keep building on that. And then as they get into more competitive levels, it's like, well, how do I maintain uh, the perspective or the perception that I'm I'm a good player and that I can do this, right? And so I agree, there's, there's so much to that, right? Is going back to the fundamentals, you know, memory, arousal and attention. All those things play such a key role in perception. And so, yeah, as a coach, I think we really want to be mindful of those type of things is, is, is if we have an athlete that's struggling or wants to thrive, all right, let's set the bar for them. What does that look like? If you're going to take your game to the next level, right, what are the foundations of, of building positive memories? What are the foundations that you're taking into it where you have to prepare your mind? You can't just run an Ironman. You have to be physically prepared, but you have to be mentally prepared, right? And that's what we're talking about. The perception of just being able to do something very romantic, but it's very, very, you know, uh, you know, not doable. It's, it's going to lead to chaos unless there is this preparation and the perception that, yes, I can do it. And that takes us back full circle to uh, our, our opening comments on the topic of perception, the biological side and the psychological side of this incredibly huge topic that is perception. What a great breakdown and introduction. I have to say, you know, each year, Dr. Mrazek, we've had themes on the show. We've had talent and talent ID where we've talked to the world's top experts in that area. And it was a year long. I think we had 17 episodes altogether. It was enlightening. It was humbling, but it was incredibly interesting. And then you cracked us open on the brain game. And we actually dedicated two seasons, an episode every month to the brain game. I do believe that perception, you know, I think this is worthy of a year long deep dive into perception. We've cracked it open here and I have more questions now than I had when we started, but, but what a great start to such an interesting topic. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm sure the listeners probably have many stories of how their perception changed and why that was and what were the important variables of that and, and players that, you know, 
uh, were struggling. And then, you know, we have some examples at the high level where they were kind of struggling through the minors, struggling through different leagues, and then they make it to the big league. Well, what was going on, right? There was, there was something that was really important in their perception, right? And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very fascinating topic and there's a lot of different facets to it. I think as we talked about earlier, it's difficult to break down, but that's what we're doing here is we're trying to break it down into important, uh, understandable components, which uh, which is fun. It's a, it's an enjoyable process. It's an academic exercise, but I think it's been a really, really great start to this. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And maybe on a closing note. So I think about team building here as well and putting together the pieces, you know, whether you're a single um, 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 athlete on Ironman, tennis, golf, or whether you're part of a team, everybody has a team around them. But, you know, when it comes to team building and the perception of take football, for example, we talked about the different demands of the different positions. <laughs> it, it makes me think of a scene. I don't know if you've ever watched the show Brooklyn nine, nine. Have you ever seen this show? Yeah, Hilarious. yeah, my daughter's watching. Yeah, one yeah. of my favorite shows. So one day, um, um, uh, Adam Sandberg uh, is he's messing around doing something, and Terry Crews, who's his lieutenant, you know, is trying to calm him down, and he picks him up by the shoulders, and he's saying, "Get you, Peralta, calm down, right?" And and Peralta goes to 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 the sergeant, says, "Do I even weigh anything to you?" He says, "No, it's like lifting a grape." <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> he's so strong. And that just, you know, Terry, his perception of, you know, how much a human being weighs uh, was just totally different than Peralta's. And I, again, for some reason, that image just came to my mind. Uh, but how it can vary from person to person, right? It's a very, very individual thing. And a lot of that comes back to those m memories and emotions that we've tied into the whole network. Yeah, no, for sure. There's there's certainly a lot to that, right? Is is just uh, how do we understand perception and then individualize it? Because everybody has their own story and their own uh, way of of perceiving the world around them. And yet, there's these basic principles in biology that can help us unlock these secrets to what may be skewing our perception. And what are some things that could help us adjust our perception? Yeah, yeah. And we won't dive into this now, but I'm going to make a note of this for future conversations. Would we ever want to um, systematically systematically control perception? Would we want everybody to have the same perception? You know what I mean? Like we talk about these training facilities where, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of a year or two years of training, every athlete moves the same. They're exactly the same because this facility or program has a philosophy. You know, they're building these, these identical type of athletes. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure that having a consistent perception across the board would be so great for performance, especially in a team setting. Interesting topic, maybe. Yeah, and and I, you know, I, I think there's so many individual differences, right? And uh, you know, everybody as we've talked about brings their own story and their own memories and and their own biological makeup when it comes to these things. So yeah, there's going to be so many different perspectives, much like the. The, uh, you know, the analogy of the 10 blind men who are touching the elephant and everybody came up with an entirely different perspective. And yet I think there is something about, uh, you know, we, we have an understanding of beauty, for example, right? George Clooney, he's a beautiful person. People think he's an incredible, well, he's got eyes, he's got ear, like, you know, all those, well, what is it about them? And yet there seems to be something that we judge inside of us that says, well, there's a bit of a standard out there. Hmm. And so there may be different different perspectives on it, 
but I think that there is some commonalities in perception when it comes to some things. I think very different looks at it, but at the same point, I think there are these standards that we think of, yeah, this seems to be, this seems to make the most sense for the most people. Yeah, interesting. And I go to my brain, my brain, you know, with the ML with the MLB draft just going down, I can't help but think the role that plays in talent ID and, you know, those the 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 selection of of talented athletes, the perception of of different teams and organizations and how they look at it. Conversations for another day. Dr. Morazic, what an incredible start to what I think is going to be a major, major topic here on Crush Performance Perception. Thanks so much. Any closing comments from you as we sort of wrap this introductory conversation up? Uh, you know, I, I think it has been uh, uh, just that. It's been an introductory conversation that opens the world up, right? It's, it's as we started out saying, it's a hard thing to really get a good sense of. And yet I think it's important because the more we talk about it, the more we can make sense of what is this thing? Because the analogies of perception, like when somebody perceives something to be impossible and then they move into, no, it is possible, like think of how powerful that is. And so it's, it's a very worthy conversation, a uh, lot to it. The four minute mile, the sub two hour marathon. Oh, we're gonna have great conversations coming up, I could tell. Dr. Morazic, thanks so much for your time, insights here. It's always a pleasure. And hey, welcome back to the show as we relaunch here after the big uh, COVID uh, Jeff Health Scare shutdown. So such a great way to kick it off. Always appreciate being here. There you go. You and I are officially in the rabbit hole and it is a long way down. There is so much more to cover, but I think this was a great introduction to the topic of perception. Just a heads up, it will be a top theme for our 2024 season. We've only scratched the surface here. Coming up next week, let's have some fun. It's the Midsummer Classic, MLB's All-Star Game. At the start of the season, I said all will be as it should be by the All-Star break. So let's have a look and see if that's true. There are some interesting developments in the game, and not all is as I thought it would be. So let's have a fun look at that. Also, I want to have a look at team spending in sport. Does more money equal better performance? We'll look at team payrolls from each of the major sports and see if that actually holds true. And are we about to see the richest contract in sport history? Some feel it's about to happen. We'll have a look at the player, all of the big contracts in sport, and the concept of making players as valuable as possible in today's sport talent marketplace. I want to thank Dr. Morazic for joining us today and sharing his vast knowledge. Go to EliteAthleteServices.com for more information there. And I want to thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, or if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, let us know. Write to us, info at JeffKershell.com. The Crush Performance Podcast is recorded in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner, Radio Influence Digital Media. Go to RadioInfluence.com. Website and educational material are produced and directed by Debbie Kershell, Miss Crusher. Theme music, graphics, and video design by Noah Olexin at Nolexin Visual and Sound. This is the 18th season of Crush Performance. To get the Crush archives and to subscribe to the show, go to jeffkershell.com and follow me on social media. Search out Crush Performance. And stay tuned. The Crush Performance video series is coming soon on YouTube. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.